are you guys? Good. You guys ever have any questions about God? I do. Uh, in particular, I have questions about God uh, in ways that are like, why are you like that? <laughs> you know, like, why do you do that? Like a bunch of whys. Um, you know, when you're, when you're little, you, you ask why about everything. And somewhere along the line, we kind of feel like we're supposed to stop asking those kinds of questions about God. And I just don't think it's true. Uh, so this week I, I Googled some questions around God and let the, uh, autofill kind of tell me like what questions people have, right? Like I think questions like, why does God allow suffering? Makes sense. I have that question, right? Questions like, why does God take our loved ones? Also makes sense. I have that question. I've never once asked, why does God need a starship? Not once, ever. But if it autofills, I'm sort of feeling like, should I be asking this question more often than I am? I don't know, right? Why does God exist? Great question. But the one that strikes me most has to be the first one. Why does God hate me? Number one, right? And number two, why does God hate me? That's a real question. Maybe you don't think of that question exactly in that kind of in-your-face way, but I bet there's some version of that question that you ask or have asked along the way. We have been working through the Gospel of Matthew this year, uh, and my goal as we've done that is is really to help us get a really clear picture of Jesus. Like, we want to sit with Jesus. That's why we've chosen this book, uh, this gospel, and we want to get a really, really clear picture of him. And we've, we're spending all this time with Jesus week after week, chapter after chapter. And over the last six weeks, we've spent our time with Jesus as he has a lot of conversations, uh, a lot of interactions, particularly with religious people during the festival of Passover. They're all there. And as we've seen these, these interactions just turn into confrontation after confrontation, argument after argument. And every single time, I sort of feel like the message uh, I'm getting from that chapter, from that story, the message, maybe even I, I, I might be moving forward from the stage here is that, boy, you're doing it wrong. You guys are terrible at this, right? That's kind of how I feel like Jesus is interacting with these people. So I think it's actually a really important question to wrestle with as we've had these interactions of people getting it wrong, Jesus criticizing people, particularly religious people, is to really ask, so what is it? Does God hate these people? Does God hate religious people? Is it just better to avoid religion and faith than the church altogether? Would it be easier for me to just try to like love the people around me, be a good person and avoid all this religious nonsense? Or if you are someone who would say, I am a person of faith, do these stories communicate to me somehow that I'm a problem, that I am problematic? Does God hate me? And if he doesn't, why does it kind of come off like he does? Why does it seem like that's where we're going every single time we have this conversation? Today, we finally get to the end of these conversations. 
Uh, we finally get to the end of these confrontations with these different groups. Last week, I kind of talked a lot about all these different groups that Jesus is interacting with. And, and today, I think in chapter 23, sums up the conversations that he's been having. And so as we end this particular series on power and authority, we want to look at how Jesus sums up the conversations he's just had. And we're just going to jump right into Matthew chapter 23 in the first verse. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. So let's just stop for a moment. Jesus has all these conversations with all these religious groups and these leaders and stuff. And then at the end of these conversations, he kind of turns to his people, turns to his disciples. He turns to the crowds and and he addresses them. And he says, listen, These guys that I've been talking to, particularly the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they sit in Moses' seat, which is actually a real thing. Let me, let me talk a little bit about furniture in the first century uh, in the temple. Uh, here's a great picture of a temple in a little town in the Galilee called Chorazin. Uh, it's all in ruins right now, but you can actually walk through it and get a sense of the different pieces and parts of the temple. If you look at the main doorway there, you'll see somebody just kicking it, just relaxing, right? Uh, Next to him on the inside, uh, on the left-hand side, is something called a Moses seat. Let me zoom in on that and show you the Moses seat. Really exciting, isn't it? Right? It's just a seat, right? Uh, Most every synagogue has one of these or a version of these. And basically, when the faith community gathers, they do so at the synagogue. Uh, And uh, somebody is different. Somebody is teaching every day. It's different. There's a whole schedule and people from the community take turns uh, reading from God's law, reading from whatever scrolls they might have uh, in their community. And if it's your turn to read, that's the seat you sit on. It's the Moses seat. You unroll the scroll. You read the words of God to the people. That's your job for the day. And so Jesus tells his friends and his followers that the Pharisees in particular, the teachers of the law, they sit there. So when they talk, you should listen, right? Because what they are saying uh, when they sit in that seat is the words of God. They're telling you the scripture. They read the scriptures for you in synagogue. They teach from those words. They are educated. They are smart. And they teach wisely. When they're reading and when they're teaching, go ahead and listen to them. And then he changes his direction. Verse three. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. That's a real left turn there, right? Do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They actually really love to sit in that Moses seat. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So just a quick note, you don't know what a phylactery is. Phylactery is basically uh, a small leather box uh, that a real um, religious Jewish person would put uh, pieces of scripture inside of it and then bind it around on their foreheads or on their arms. 
And they did that because when God gave the law, he said, teach this to your children, bind it on your foreheads, uh, bind it to your arms. And they took it literally. So that's what a phylactery is. Uh, Tassels uh, are these just pieces of string that kind of hang off of your garments. Because somewhere along the line, uh, God uh, made some kind of command around that. And that is how they interpreted it. Now, the interesting thing about both of those references Jesus makes is that they are visible signs to the people around you that you're following God's law, that you are righteous. And apparently, the wider you made your little box and the longer you made your little tassels, well, the the more righteous you might be. And that's what these guys do. So listen to them when they teach. They know the law. But don't act like them. Because they love to make your faith more difficult than it needs to be. They love to look the part, but not play the part. I don't know if you've ever had the experience uh, in parenting where you would say, well, no, don't do what I say, do what I do, right? No, don't repeat me when I say that, do it. This is parenting, right? And that's what Jesus is saying about these Pharisees. He's recognizing that they love to teach God's law, but they also end up using God's law to make themselves look better. I like to think of these Pharisees as the very first cultural influencers. We live in an age of influencers. Uh, People have influence in our culture because a lot of people watch their TikTok or a lot of people like their picture on Instagram, right? They were using their righteousness to elevate themselves among people. A lot of people liked their righteousness. Everything they did was meant to be seen. Jesus calls that out. They wanted recognition and influence that comes with being righteous. So here's the thing you need to know about what Jesus is saying in this moment. These guys started off in a good place. But this isn't about God anymore for them. They started out in a good place. We want to follow God's commands. They started out in a really good place, but this is no longer about God. This is about themselves. And we do that too. We can use our faith to get something we want. It might not be power. It might not be influence. It might be. It might just be a feeling of righteousness to say, I'm okay. Or I'm better than them. It might be just the ability to say those people over there are different than me. We do it too. We use our faith in God and our even faith practices to set ourselves apart from people. And so let's read what Jesus has to say to them. A couple verses later, after he kind of told his, his followers, this is what their deal is. He now addresses the Pharisees and he says this, uh, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let, let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of a cup and a dish, but inside they are filled of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. One more, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You were like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's rough. That's a rough conversation with Jesus. It would be exceptionally difficult for you to hear if you were a Pharisee, a religious person who's like, I've devoted my life to this thing, to doing the right things. And Jesus just keeps going on and on and on. I don't even think I included all of them in here. So is Jesus overreacting? That's a question I have when I read this. Like, slow down, Jesus. Like, these are religious people. These are people who are careful with their religious obligations. Jesus, isn't that a good thing? They're trying to do a bunch of good things. They are righteous by any measure that we would use to evaluate them. Jesus, might you be a little too harsh? You ever argue with Jesus? Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, I don't think so, Jesus. I think you're getting this wrong. And that's the source of my problems, usually. But listen, you might have felt that in this series of conversations we've talked about for the last six weeks. Because over the last six weeks, I feel like I've thrown a lot of us under the bus as we have this conversation. Those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus have gotten a lot of challenge out of these chapters. And my guess is somewhere along the line, if you've stuck with it, it's made you a little bit uncomfortable. I know I've felt that way. You may even flat out want to disagree with it, like I do sometimes. I want you to know that I recognize it. And I've done that on purpose because I think Jesus is doing that on purpose. Because for whatever reason, the God of the universe has chosen to partner with human beings to restore the brokenness of sin in this world. And he seems to save his harshest criticisms for the people who have agreed to partner with him in that mission. To those who are an example and a guide for others in the community and in the world. Because there's a lot at stake. You know what sin is? Let's talk about sin for a minute. Frankly, I think we actually have a lot of different definitions of sin in our, in our life. Uh, most of us would go like, at this very simplest, sin is this thing that I do that I shouldn't, probably, right? That's not what sin it really is, I don't think. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, there's a story of God and humans. And God and humans are in this relationship. God, the creator, in relationship with his creation, humankind. 
and this relationship was good and it was fulfilling and it was complete. He was God and we were his people. That's how it began. And then in this story, humanity makes a decision, a decision to pursue a different kind of relationship with their creator. Instead of him being God and us being uh, his people, humanity said, we want to be like God. And so, yes, they eat some fruit because a serpent told them to. And, uh, and as a result, they have a problem. But the choice is fundamentally to alter the relationship. That's what we call original sin. Original sin is simply the idea that all humans, all people, just by being born, inherit that broken relationship with their creator. And that relationship needs to be restored. That's what original sin is. As a result of the broken relationship, we all have a bent towards sinful conduct. So the root of sin is not we do bad things that God doesn't like. The root of sin is that every single one of us is born with a broken relationship with their creator. And it needs fixing. And as a result of that broken relationship, our behavior is problematic. So what I want you to see about sin is it's not simply the choices we make. It's the reason we make the choices we make. And God has this mission throughout the entirety of the Bible to work through this broken relationship and restore relationship between him and his creation. That's what's at stake. The mission of God. So when it comes to the people who have said, God, we want to be part of that mission. We want to be an example. We want to be a guide for the world. When it comes to people like the Pharisees, Jesus has a lot to say. And he says, you guys are careful with the small religious obligations, but you neglect the more important ones of justice and mercy. See, these religious people have chosen a path to walk, And the path they chose is this religious obligation path. That's their path. But all paths lead us somewhere and they shape us differently, right? And a result of the path they have chosen, Jesus says, you are being shaped to be a hypocrite, to be a blind guide, to be a whitewashed tomb. Beautiful on the outside, but dead on the inside. I created you to be in relationship with me and that relationship is fractured by sin. And the path you're choosing isn't leading you back to me. It's leading you away from me. It's shaping you to focus on yourself, on your influence. God has a different path in mind. I think that's why he's so harsh with religious people. I think that's why he's so harsh. Because he says, you are people who started in the right place. And then your path took you towards yourself instead of me. But he has a different path in mind for us. He has a different way to shape us. And my favorite verse in the entire scripture is the Apostle Paul writing in Romans 8. Where he says this. This is out of the the message. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided at the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of the humanity that he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. 
Paul writes that our intended shape is to be a son of the king. It's to be a daughter of the king. To be a child of the father. In that reconnected relationship. And when the religious obligations of of Pharisees and religious people become the definition of that relationship, it leads us away from that shape. When we focus on loving our neighbor and justice and mercy, we actually get shaped to be more like Jesus Christ. God doesn't long for us to do all of the right things. He longs for us to take a path that leads us back towards our intended shape as a child of the father. And so to those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, it seems like in these chapters, he has the most to say to us. Because we have a broken relationship with our creator. We are on a journey back to God. And instead of recognizing it and repenting of it, we often try to make small religious obligations our most important. Let's make sure those are okay. And we neglect our neighbor and we neglect justice and we neglect mercy. How much of your life is spent polishing the outside of the cup? But let's get back to my original question. Does God hate me? Because again, here we are once more, week number six, feels like he kind of might, right? Feels like he's really like, woe to you. You have missed it. You hypocrite, you blind guide. Let's finish the conversation the way Jesus finishes the conversation. Verse 34. Therefore, because of all the woes I just said, because you're so terrible at this thing, therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your own synagogues and pursue from town to town. And then he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the home of the temple, the place where all of these people are gathered, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather you, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. They keep getting it wrong. They keep taking the wrong path. That wrong path keeps leading them back to themselves instead of to God. And Jesus says, because you do that, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep sending you prophets. I'm going to keep sending you sages and teachers. Even though you won't listen. Even though you'll kill some of them and stone some of them, I won't give up on you. I will keep sending them because he still longs to gather us like a mother hen and her chicks. I think the reason Jesus is talking like this, woe to you hypocrites, you're shaping your lives in the wrong direction It's because he's longing for you. He's longing for the relationship that we were created in. And he watches us walk in this other direction. He's like, I long for you to be over here with me. He doesn't hate us because of sin. He longs for us. He loves us so much that his heart breaks for what he wants us to be. 
The God of the universe created us. He called us, he equipped us. And when we get it wrong, he doesn't leave us. In fact, let me share a scripture from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Torah. Uh, It's the Bible Jesus read. It was all the law that these Pharisees were so focused on. It was decidedly in uh, part of this way of God shaping his people. He used the, the Torah to shape his people. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Don't fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in sight of all of Israel, be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That's who God is. That's why God does not hate you because of sin. Because he won't leave you. He won't ever stop laying out a path for you to find your way back to him. And the bottom line is we tend to wash the outside of the cup, not the inside. We focus on small religious obligations and neglect our neighbor. We lead people down paths that only end up focusing on ourselves and our own righteousness. We do that. We do it all the time. We've done it for centuries. You did it this week. And yet, God doesn't hate you. Just the opposite. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Because he still has a shape in mind of who you are to be. The original intended shape of your life. He still thinks you belong. He still longs to draw you close. He invites you to take another step on the path he has laid out back towards him. So that's good news. That is the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. Even when Jesus has the harshest criticism, he's doing it because he longs to gather us. So let me leave you with three things. What do I do with that? What do I do with that information? Or more importantly, what do I do with that different way of viewing the world and viewing God? I want to give you three things just to consider, just to think about as we open our eyes to this idea of what might be shaping us. If some things are shaping us in a pathway towards ourselves and away from God, what can we see that might move us in the other direction? So three things to think about. Number one, I don't say this a lot, but think about yourself. Think about yourself, because believe it or not, you deserve some woes spoken over you. I do too. You've run into roadblocks. You've used your power against marginalized people, not for them. You've had one job and you didn't get it right. It is very easy to read these chapters uh, as a story of some religious people we don't understand from a really long time ago. But this critique still applies today. It applies to you. It applies to me. And if we're going to spend all this time getting a closer look at Jesus, we should listen to what he says and look inward at the Pharisee, at the hypocrite that might be inside. Where have you focused on small religious obligations? Where have you neglected the people around you? 
If you've noticed those faults as you, as you consider what's going on inside of you, repent. Go to God. Tell him confidently that you have neglected the pathway he's laid out for you. And you need his help to overcome it. Remember, he won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He's waiting for you to realize this and come on the pathway with him. So as we look through this lens, think about ourselves. What do I see inside me that might be leading me in a different path? Number two, think about your people. Think about the way you've applied your faith to the people around you. It is likely that we too have placed heavy loads of expectation on those around us and haven't done anything to stay in relationship with them. It is likely that you have canceled someone, cut someone out, or some people out of your life because you cannot associate with people who don't measure up to your expectations. It's easy to cancel, it's easy to ignore, it's easy to cut off. It is harder to stay in relationship. But that is how God's love is characterized. Though we were still sinners, he sent his son to be with us. So think about your people. Are you going to stay with them? If God sticks with us when we don't measure up, how much more should we pursue those who we think don't measure up? So consider yourself, what might be going on inside of you that takes you on a path away from the shaping he has in mind for us? Think about your people. How have you engaged and interact uh, with, with faith and religion in a way that might take you more towards yourself than God? And then finally, I also think it's important to think about your leaders. I want to invite you to think about the people you follow. The people who have power in your life. They speak, you listen. People who have influence in your life. Jesus has set a very high standard for those guides in this text. Do you set that standard? Do the people whom you allow to lead you, to influence you, are they people who tell you what God says, but then do something different? Pay attention to your leaders. Are they people who seek influence and power and control? Or are they people who walk a path of humility? Pay attention to the people who are influencing you. And listen, uh, when it comes to power and authority, power means everything in a fear-based culture. So pay attention to the people who are trying to make you fearful. Why are they doing that? Why are they seeking to stir that up in you? Pay attention to the people you allow to lead you. And on the other hand, if you think about the people who lead you and influence you and shape you, do you see something that looks like Jesus? If you do, call it out. Cheer it on. Encourage it when you see it. Thank that person for, for influencing you in a way closer to God. But give attention to who is shaping you around you. It's a hard message, but the good message is that God doesn't leave us. God doesn't leave us while we're stumbling to figure out the right path we're on, while different things are shaping us. 
It actually reminds me of a story uh, that I heard from a pastor named Tony Campolo. He said uh, he was talking about overhearing a conversation one day. And this conversation was someone telling a friend that their church had just gotten a new leader, a new pastor. And the guy was saying, how much better this new guy is than the last guy. So his friend says, well, why? What's, what's the difference? He says, well, the old guy would just get on the stage every week and remind everyone how terrible they were, that we could never measure up, that on our own, we could never be enough. So his friend goes, oh, okay, well, how's the new guy different? And he says, well, the new guy gets on stage every single week and he reminds us about how terrible we are and how that we can never measure up and that on our own, we can just never be enough. His friend looks at him, scratches his head. He's like, sounds an awful lot like the old guy. And his friend says, yeah, but the new guy does it with a tear in his eye. Because he knows how much God longs for us. And he leads us in a way that draws us closer to that path. So does God hate me? No. God longs for you. He longs for you to engage the path that shapes you to be more a son, daughter, child of the father. He longs for you to be in a complete relationship with him. And it breaks his heart when we take the other direction. And every single time we recognize it and we take a step toward him, he opens his arms and says, I'm waiting for you. I'm here already. Let's pray together. Lord God, I'm grateful that you are a father who loves, not a father who hates. God, I'm grateful for the conversations with religious people in these chapters of Matthew. They're hard to hear, God, and I confess that it's easy for me uh, to push those conversations into some corner of other people instead of hearing them about me. Uh, But God, I recognize that uh, I don't get it right either. I recognize that um, my path often leads back to myself instead of to you. And God, I need your help. We need your help. We need your help to draw ourselves back to you. We need, we need you to remind us that we don't measure up, but we don't have to. Because you measure up and you fill the gap for us. And you draw us to yourselves. God, forgive us when we have told other people something different. When we have pushed other people away from you instead of leading them back towards the extravagant love you have for them. Thank you for the ways we get it wrong that we can learn from and make new choices. We pray that you would guide us in those choices today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.